This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is Daniel Finkelstein sitting in for Matt Chorley and this is the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Today, I've been talking to George Osborne about what really is the right age to run for office. Well, I started working with George Osborne when he was the political secretary to the leader of the opposition and he was 26 years old. He was the leader of the opposition, himself was only 35 years old, and then George was shadow chancellor at the age of 33. So I thought he'd be a good person to ask about the right age to enter politics, the right age to run for office, and what you do if you leave politics when you're still relatively youthful. So good morning, George. Good morning, Danny. What a, I never thought I'd be on your radio show, but I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm excited to have you. Listen, given that the US has one of the oldest presidential candidates uh, in, he- in history, indeed, it's the oldest presidential pairing in the race, I thought that might be quite a good place to start. Joe Biden is 77. Is he too old? No, I don't think he is, because it's not really about age. It's about whether you have the energy and the ideas, in this case, to be the president. And, you know, fun, I mean, I've met Joe Biden quite a few times. And one of the conversations I had with him was about him becoming a senator when he was 29. <laughs> He's actually one of the youngest people ever in the history of the United States to enter the Senate. Um, in fact, he wasn't allowed to enter until he was 30. He got elected, but they, they wouldn't let him in until his uh, birthday. So, I, you know, I think, you know, that's an example of a career that both started very young and now. You know, obviously, is concluding at a kind of at a ripe old age. So it's not, as I say, in my experience of politics, as indeed other walks of life, it's not really about age. It's it's what you bring to the job. So if you've met him a few times. You'll have the question, you know, which we're all trying to feel our way to. Has he has he slowed up a bit? Do you think? Well, I, I think look, he's obviously. I mean, I haven't seen him in the last couple of years. I, he, he's not, you know, the youthful young tearaway in in democrat politics that he was when you know 40 years ago obviously um and he's more now the kind of grand old person of the democrat party he was he was the safe choice wasn't he in that in that contest but as a result i think probably the best place person they could have picked to try and beat donald trump but you know what um, you know what energy is needed, you know, because I, yeah. uh, you know, I, I remember meeting with you in your office when ten Downing Street or eleven Downing Street. It was it was ten o'clock at night, uh, and you were going back to work. I I was already done for by that point. So you know that you need energy. Do you think he's really got that energy? 
Well, look, I think there are different ways to do these jobs. And I'm not, not that I'm comparing being Chancellor of the President of the United States, but, you know, they're very, very um, energy consuming. Um, and the energy is not just about the paperwork and the late hours and whatever. It's it's that kind of constantly thinking, what what more could I be doing? What? And, and I think the biggest sort of missing ingredient in politics, but again, it's true in other areas, is original thinking. You know, the people you come across who come have sort of new ideas are few and far between. And, and you know, so therefore, it's not really how many hours you put in or what age you are. It's can you bring original thinking? And I've met people in their 70s who are full of new ideas. And I've met people in their 30s who've got no new ideas at all. So, you know, I think Biden will be a very good and impressive president of the United States. Um, there's probably no one who's had a sort of longer training for it in that respect. Um, and I think, you know, look generally for the world, I'm, I've always, you know, I'm a conservative. I've always had close links with the Republican Party and, and I've got lots of friends in the Republican Party. But I think Britain could do with a reliable, predictable ally in the White House, someone who we know and someone who is not going to surprise us with, you know, tweets at five in the morning suggesting we appoint Nigel Farage as our ambassador. <laughs> but wh why does um, America have two candidates in their 70s? And isn't there, you know, one of the things that you talk about new ideas that aren't these people going to be recycling the ideas of, with the best one in the world of 20 or 30 years ago? Um, and uh, how do you think this has happened that they've ended up in that position? Because, I mean, even Bernie Saunders was also an old candidate. They had Mike Michael Bloomberg, uh, whom you know well, also an old mm. candidate. Uh, wh why has this gone on? I don't think, I, I think it's probably just uh, coincidence. You know, I, I think it's true that certainly the kind of coming people, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, were young. And of course, the David Cameron team that I was part of was pretty young. Um, but I think that was, you know, it's it's partly that was because a, a sort of elder generation had given away the Reagan generation. There was a new sort of broom in politics, and now maybe, you know, we've, the sort of cycles turned a bit, and you get these old. But I'm not. I don't. I think you can probably. It's too much. Um, you know, it's too much sort of hindsight to impose a pattern on this. I think you know, if there had been a, you know, Joe Biden, I'm sure would love to be running for president twenty years. You know, being 20 years younger, he probably would have more energy. But, uh, you know, it, it turned and he's run <laughs> several goes of trying to run for president. But this time it worked for a minute. I, so I don't know. I think you can be we can we can read too much into it bluntly. Uh, it's not that I think society okay. has come to respect older leaders. So listen, it's just you and me and the and the listeners. I think both of us realize William yeah. Hague isn't listening. So we can therefore privately behind his back discuss this. Do you think our boss was too young? to be leader of the opposition? Well, he was 36, wasn't he, I think, when he became leader of the opposition. Um, but then David Cameron was 39, 40, and, you know, a pretty effective leader of the opposition. So, again, I don't, it, it, it's kind of what you bring. I think, you know, you could, obviously the risk when you're young is that you can look not only inexperienced, but a bit jejeune, a bit too... Um, kind of uh, brittle and, you you know, lacking a kind of the, the roundness that comes with experience and the passage of time. And, and you know, possibly that was the case for William when he became uh, opposition leader. But nice. that was, but I suspect that might have been the issue several years later. And to be fair to him, he was, you know, again, he was in a sort of impossible situation that Tories have been in office for 
18 years had just been kicked out. Tony Blair had just arrived. The economy was going well. You know, it it was a really tough beat for any opposition leader. Should he have have waited, do you think? Or do you think you just have to take it when it's there, when it's on the table? You can't wait. Well, I don't think you can. I mean, famously, Michael Heseltine is said to have mapped out a a career on the back of an envelope. You know, make money in your 30s or whatever it was. Make money in your 20s, get into parliament in your 30s, enter the cabinet. And and of course, the end bit was become prime minister, which he didn't. And and so I, I, I don't think you, I think kind of overly thinking your political career and and thinking you can kind of pick your timing is a mistake. You know, there was a moment for William to become leader of the Conservative Party, and he went for it, and he became leader of the Conservative Party. And by the way, he's had an incredible career since as a great foreign secretary and, and many other things he's done in his life. So, you know, I think you can't, it's, it's, you know, you don't know, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow, Danny, right, literally. And so we can have a good guess in it, but we don't know. And, you know, who would have predicted? Look at the world we're living in in the summer of 2020. And at the beginning of the year, all the predictions in the Times and other great newspapers like the Evening Standard, none of them had, like, there's going to be this virus which is going to, you know, completely disrupt our lives. So you can't predict the future. Mm. And it's one of the most difficult things about studying history. The people in history don't know what's happening next. And so... I don't think you can overly structure a political career and think I'm not going to run to be the leader of the party when the moment becomes available, if that's your ambition, yeah. because I'm going to wait 10 years or 20 years. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. You did sort of think that you were too young to be the leader of the Conservative Party at the time that David Cameron ran. Not too young, but didn't have quite enough experience, and that was certainly part of your thinking. So uh, did you feel the same when you became Chancellor of the Exchequer, or even when you became, a little bit earlier than that, when you became Shadow Chancellor? Did you? I know that when people asked you that question, you had a ready answer, but did you feel it in yourself? I didn't. I mean, when I became shadow chancellor, I mean, I was Michael Howard's shadow chancellor as well as David Cameron's. Uh, and, you know, he offered me the job and he very good, Michael, and he very kindly gave me, which you don't normally get in politics, a couple of days to think about it. And I thought I'm 33 years old. And I'm also was very conscious that the last six conservative shadow chancellors had, you know, died on the political battlefield against Gordon Brown. And you know, I thought my whole political career might be over before it's even started. And so I did think about that quite long and hard. But I actually came to the conclusion that I guess William came to and we were just discussing, which is I've been offered the chance to be the shadow chancellor. And if you're in opposition, that's the second best position going. And, I'd, you know, I'd regret for the rest of my life if I didn't take it and try to make the most of it and be a success at it. And then I, you know, and I spent five years as Shadow Chancellor, you know, uh, uh, one of the longest posts any time anyone held that post. So I definitely felt it with Shadow Chancellor. I'm with Chancellor at the Exchequer. You know, although I was young when I became it, historically speaking, you know, I actually felt pretty experienced in that I've been this very long serving Shadow Chancellor. I had thought a lot about what I wanted to do. You know, I was pretty clear about what, uh, what those first budgets needed. So, I, you know, I felt like I had been five years in preparation for that job. Um, and again, no one can choose really their sort of timing in politics. But I think being in opposition is, is a great training for being in government. Uh, and 
you know, I felt incredibly fortunate to have had such a long period of time to think about what I wanted to do if and when I got into number 11. An aspect of the, the sort of Cameron's team's youth um, was that their experience had been political and they were very, very practised, experienced and adept at what they were doing in terms of the immediate politics in front of them. But it was a, a constant criticism and I wonder whether you felt it. You know, what do these people know about life, right? Not not so much socially, but, you know, have you done uh, you done any other jobs, for example? David had a little bit. Um, but, but, but you worked for the leader of the opposition, gained that political skill, worked for Douglas Hogg, um, didn't have uh, so much. Would you? Did you feel sometimes when you were Chancellor of the Exchequer, you're dealing with uh, big business people that um, either in terms of dealing with them or just in terms of dealing with the problems in front of you, it would have been useful to have had a longer career before that? And the, I mean, the short answer is no, because I don't think, you know, I, I brought an enormous amount of political experience and, the, you know, and British politics, as indeed is littered with business people with great, you know, fantastically successful business people who do not succeed in, in politics. And I think it's a rather romantic idea. I call, you know, it's almost sort of ancient Athenian idea that the kind of good citizens of the country to form the parliament to be the government. You know, politics is a very tough business. And someone who's been doing it for 20 years and seen it at every level, as I had, from the most junior kind of photocopy boy at Downing Street up to being the shadow chancellor and the chancellor. You know, I just had a lot of political experience and I'd seen a lot of crises come and go, uh, again, with different sort of viewpoints. And I knew when, you know, something was serious and when something would blow over and you know, and I thought that gave others will judge that you know gave me a maturity that was not necessarily reflected in the you know in my the fact I was thirty eight or thirty seven thirty eight thirty nine. Um, as for this sort of external experience, again, you know, it's it's sort of striking, and you will know many political figures, Danny, like me. Some people with a kind of world of experience are incredibly narrow minded when they get into politics. Other people who've had their entire career in politics are encouraged. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. We're broad-minded. And it, I don't think, you know, I think it's the sort of CV, look, as we know, you know, if you've ever employed someone or in any kind of role, the CV tells you not actually very much. It's the person and their character and their, their ideas. And as I come back to that point, you know, the thing that 
was lacking in every political environment I've seen, including the current one, as I observe, is not is not people of experience. It's a real brave thinking. It's like who's 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 prepared to think outside of the kind of traditional tram lines of politics. Um, and and I thought, look, I mean, I'm you know extremely biased, but I think the Cameron government in 2010 in coalition came up with a whole series of ideas about education reform, you know, a, a, a green energy agenda, uh, constitutional reform, economic reform that, you know, were, will stand the test of time as, as a kind of one of the best governments. Um, and, you are biased. You know, so we'll... <laughs> I'm, I'm super biased. But, I, but like, you know, I don't... I think people look back, you know, they will look back on that 2010 government with some nostalgia, I think, you know, and I look, I haven't noticed much reform going on in the country since. So, you know. Well, let's let, let's uh, let's just deal with this government and now and uh, on the question of age. You've got a very young uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. I think he was a little bit older than you when he became Chancellor. Is that right? He is a few months older, yes. I had to check. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I knew you would I have think done. He's very, very good, by the way. I know you well enough to know you would have checked. Right. Well, I, what yeah. I want to know um, so, uh, have, has he asked you for, for advice about dealing with being uh, that high office at that sort of young age? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to, even to you, Danny, and, and, our, and our millions of listeners, I'm not going to talk about my private conversations with him, but I know him pretty well. He's very impressive. He, by the way, I think illustrates, yeah, I would say in this government, without being too disrespectful to everyone else, you know, where are the kind of interesting ideas coming from, largely from the Treasury? It's one of the great myths, actually, of the last two prime ministers, both Boris Johnson and Theresa May, that they're sort of anti-Treasury. You know, they should go and look at the front door of number 10. It says First Lord of the Treasury. And and uh, prime ministers like David Cameron, uh, who know how to use the treasury and get on with their chancellor, can can become, you know, can, can it can enormously enhance their power. And Rishi is using the brilliant civil servants of the treasury and to come up with some really original ideas. Everything from the, you know, the the restaurant help scheme that we've seen this August to the furlough scheme. You know, really original policy responses to an unprecedented situation at the moment. So, you know, he, Rishi is impressive. The Treasury is being impressive and, and doing what it does best. OK, so he's got a political uh, dispute on the Times been covering or a certain incipient political dispute. You know there'll be one anyway over resources in this government. But the example mm. we used was the pension lock, uh, where he uh, favours re- relaxing that policy and uh, Boris Johnson is said to favour not doing so. Mm. What advice would you give him about trying to set that sort of row. Well, I introduced the pension lock, so <laughs> again, I have, I'm a bit party free on this. And you know, for all the talk about its generosity, let's remember that when I was younger in politics and in opposition, and and you know, go back to the 1980s, pensioner poverty was one of the biggest problems in our country. You know, some of the poorest people in our country were some of the eldest who had least ability to do anything about it because they retired and were no longer working. And, you know, the fact that we've all but eliminated pension of poverty, thanks to the reforms of that government I was part of, you know, is something I'm really proud of. And, you know, so I and I and I, I don't I don't necessarily agree that it's unaffordable. I think it's a question of a country 
and its priorities and whether you want to look after it, the elderly citizens in that country. Um, is that a question? I mean, there are certain, is that a question? There are certain decisions yeah. I took, you know, where I thought that some of the things that go just blanket to all pensioners, regardless of how old they are, I'm sorry, how rich they are, like the BBC TV licence, you know, for almost the entire existence of the BBC, pensioners have paid the licence fee. It was only Gordon Brown who, you know, as a gimmick really introduced this thing that said suddenly, you know, the, the elderly people shouldn't have to pay licence fee regardless of how rich they are. And I think the BBC compromise, which I gave them the power to introduce, which is poorer pensioners won't have to pay it, rich pensioners will is is perfectly sensible it's also political though when we're talking about generational it, the conservative party's voter base is older voters so isn't it just trying to uh make sure that it protects older voters uh and the result of it is younger voters are completely turned away from the conservative party and that started of course um uh, a long time before this government well I, uh, well first of all um i don't think it's just down to kind of pensioner benefits i mean you know again I think David Cameron's government was pretty effective at winning sport amongst younger voters. And I think there are other reasons why the Conservative Party, you know, and elements of the Conservative Party who, who want to kind of wage a war on modern culture and, you know, and look, we, the, the great B word Brexit, not supported by largely by young people in this country. You know, those are reasons why younger people have turned been pushed away from the Conservative Party. But doesn't mean, uh, you know, this Conservative government or a Conservative government that comes after it can't win back that support. I mean, it's always probably going to be the case that more youthful people lean more to the left. But that's, you know, but you don't, you, there are degrees of that. Um, so I don't think it's about pension benefits. And I would say, look, you look at the things like the furlough scheme that Rishi's introduced, you know, that disproportionately benefits younger people uh, in work um, or who were in work until this fire. So you know, there are things which ultimately, as a government, if you if you're too factional, you're too sectional. You you try and construct a coalition of just parts of the country and not govern for the whole country, you'll be found out. And and governments that are more, and I don't mean this in the Tory sense, I mean it in the general sense, more one nation, try and govern for parts of the country, even if they don't get political support from those parts of the country, uh, you know, do better. And you know, one of the biggest mistakes I made with William Hague in opposition, and you'll remember is that sort of ridiculous war we had on the metropolitan elite and the, you know, and you hear echoes of it now in this government. It's, it's you know, it's, it's trying to divide the country and set and, 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 and kind of exacerbate feelings of, um, you know, um, a grievance when you should actually, as a prime minister and a successful political party always trying to bring the country together and not Isn't speak a, to division and a, not speak to grievance. Once you've supported Brexit, though, uh, aren't you left with that as a uh, political position and aren't you left with older voters and don't you then have to double up on that and support that? Do you think that the Conservative Party has just now moved away from you and has now moved to a position because it supports Brexit, because it's appealing to older voters, where you know your pro-metropolitan elite position isn't tenable? Well, Brexit has been settled in the sense we've left the European Union in uh, the beginning of this year. And, you know, if I was the, you know, Conservative, you know, again, I'm still a member of the Conservative Party, but you know, the Conservative Party I care about would not be continuing the kind of culture camp against, you know, the, the metropolitan elite, the people who voted Remain, by the way, you know, 48% of the country. You know, I would be 
trying to, uh, you know, bring the country together and, and, and create a Brexit that, whilst not everyone will be pleased with, and these people feel that there's an attempt to bring people together. And look, I, I think Boris Johnson, who I've known a very, very long time, uh, you know, that actually his natural instinct, and you saw it when he was mayor of London, you see it now in, in some of the things, but he, he's a natural, he naturally wants to be everyone's prime minister. He's not actually, he's not a factional politician. I know that's how he ended up kind of seizing the conservative leadership, but that was a means to an end, I suspect. You know, he, he is his natural, um, demeanor is to want to be everyone's prime minister just as he wanted to be everyone's mayor of london yeah. and and my certainly my advice to him not that he needs it is to be like that because he's now got let's face it in the december general election he was facing a completely unelectable disgrace of a labor leader jeremy corbyn who did enormous damage to the labor movement that is not going to be the case next time he's got a very credible leader of the opposition he's facing in keir starmer who I note even on today, like uh, weighing in on the BBC proms row, is doing everything he can to move to the centre, to be everyone's leader of the opposition, to, you know, not to, to sort of surprise people with the with the issues he takes up. Uh, he's got a long way to go, don't get me wrong. And the Labour Party's got an even further way to go. But it's, got, you know, but the Boris, who's going to is going to be the Boris, who's the Prime Minister for the whole country, not within it, either whether they're geographical or age-based or because they backed Brexit or Remain. Well, okay, so one problem, uh, just to finish off with, that Joe Biden will not have is what does he do after he's been uh, in office? <laughs> um, uh, David, uh, Cameron left office while he was still relatively young. So did you. Is it difficult to find something as engaging as politics uh, as a second career? Well, uh, um I mean, the truth is, politics is a wonderful, incredibly exciting um, career to be in. I, whenever I get asked at schools and universities whether people should go into politics, I strongly recommend it if they, if they want to, whether they're on the left or the right. But it is enormously consuming. It, you know, everything is sort of sucked into the black hole of the political career. Um, and, it's, and, and, and of course, you also quite naturally believe the only way to have a voice in public life is to be in the cabinet. Uh, but that's not true. And you can't see that when you're either trying to get into the cabinet or sitting around the cabinet table. There are so many other influences on, on our society and so many other things you can do to contribute to its well-being. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, look, you know, I may bring you into the conversation. You know, you stood for parliament many years ago, lost because conservative candidates everywhere were losing in that election but since you know you've found a way of contributing to the public debate that is not the political career that you might have had uh, true, in the true. past and do, i'm do finding you... the same thing and i i think that kind of the big the biggest the only life lesson i've got i'm sure this is true by the way of people who've achieved other things when they're young you know whether they were in the movies or produced a song or ran you know were incredibly you know a successful athlete or whatever it is you've got to if you spend your whole life kind of regretting that you've moved on from that or that wanting to be back to that place, you're not going to have a very happy uh, time of it. So Whereas you fancy I another crack? Nothing other than incredibly lucky I had the career I had at the age I had, and, and now I'm enjoying the rest of my life. You, you fancy having another crack? No, you could never imagine going back into frontline politics. 
else is always part of me that thinks, you know, that, that, that would be interesting. And I care as much as I ever did about the country and, and its well-being. Uh, uh, but, but second acts are hard in politics as they are in American politics, although Joe Biden may be proving us all wrong. <laughs> George Osborne, thank you so much for joining us. And now an update of the news with Mark LaBelle. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.